This morning's scripture is the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. But before I read, please pray with me. Dear Father, please open our minds so that we may receive your eternal wisdom. Open our spirits so that we may know your leading and your guidance. And open our hearts so that we may receive your gift of love, who is our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Amen. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth, not by the works of the law sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through the faith of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in, in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the doing of the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if, in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. In this Easter season, we've been studying Paul's letter to the Galatians to help us think about the Christian life. And really, the question that we're asking is a simple one. If you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, to what kind of life should that lead? In this letter, we've seen that it's exactly this question that was under debate in the early church and was the reason why Paul wrote this letter. On the one side were people who claimed to be followers of Jesus, but they 
also required people to keep the Mosaic law in, in order to be saved. And Paul calls them here the circumcision faction. And on the other side was Paul and the gospel message that he preached. He said that Christians were saved by faith in Christ alone, so Gentiles did not need to keep the Jewish law in order to be Christians. So just to review what we've been seeing, the, the circumcision party preached, believe in Jesus and keep the law, and then you will be saved. But what Paul preached was believe in Jesus and you will be saved and then live a life of freedom and love and gratitude for all that God has done for you. As we heard again today, this conflict with the circumcision faction came to its head in the city of Antioch. Uh, and we hear about that in verses 11 to 14. And Cephas, which is the, the Aramaic name of, of the apostle Peter, had separated himself, along with others, from eating with Gentile believers in Christ uh, because of the pressure he felt from this circumcision faction. And in response, Paul uh, believed this was so serious that he told everyone that Peter was not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel. He wasn't walking straight in line with the truth of the gospel because he was separating himself from Gentiles. By doing this, he was implying that they were somehow second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And last week, we focused on what was happening in Antioch and how antithetical it was to this gospel message that Jesus died for uh, people of all ethnicities and, and cultures. And today, in what follows, in verses 15 to 21, we hear Paul begin to reflect on why this is true. And I think we can best understand what Paul is saying here if we start at the end of the passage in, in verses 19 and 20, and then we'll work our way back up to the conflict with Peter and Paul again. There are three things about the Christian life here that are especially crucial for us to see. First, in verses 19 to 20, we find the source of the Christian life. Second, in verses 15 to 18, we discover the standard of the Christian life. And third, in verses 11 to 14, we see the story of the Christian life. So that the source, the standard, and the story of the Christian life. But ultimately, what we need to see is the same thing that the Christians in Antioch needed to see, that life in Christ is a life of true freedom and love, not hypocrisy and fear. So let's start with the source of the Christian life that Paul describes, beginning in, in verse 19. In, in the second sentence in verse 19, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We've been saying throughout the series that the, the Christian gospel is not about what we do for God, but what God has done for us. And this is why uh, we've said it, this is why it's good news, not good advice, uh, because it's an announcement of how God saves those who are unable to save themselves through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You can hear how personal this was for Paul in these verses. This was not just a matter of ideas for him. It meant a whole new way of existence. All of life is understood in a new way in the light of Christ. 
Even mysteriously, time and space are understood in relation to Jesus here. Uh, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. The, the past and the present have collapsed. Uh, his union with Jesus is so complete that he sees himself on the cross with Jesus. He says, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. His experience of Christ is so intimate and deep that it is as if he's no longer even living. Uh, but Christ is the one who's living in him. But in, in, the, in the very next sentence, he recognizes that in, in some way he is still living. Uh, he calls it living by faith. He says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. On the one hand, his life in Christ is so dramatically different that the only way he can describe it is by saying that he died with Christ on the cross. He was raised again uh, with Christ living inside of him. On the other hand, he, he says this is, this is the life of faith in the Son of God, you know, responding to his great love and grace. He loved me. He gave himself for me. So what is the source of the Christian life? We see here that the source is always Jesus himself. Who he is and what he has done in self-giving love. Life in Christ is always a gift of grace. I think we all probably know what it's like to receive an unexpected and, and undeserved gift. And I was trying this week to think about uh, you know, how, to, how to remind us what that experience is like to receive a great gift, a gift of grace. And what came to mind is uh, Marilyn Robinson's novel, Gilead. And uh, the main character in that novel and narrator, John Ames. Uh, John Ames is an old dying pastor in a small out of the way town called Gilead, uh, who late in his life, unexpectedly ended up marrying a, a younger woman and having a child with her. And the novel is a long letter that he composes uh, for his young son before he dies. And at one, at one point, he, he marvels at the fact that he even is in this situation, <laughs> that he has a son. And, and he says this, uh, writing to his son, I'd never have believed I'd see a wife of mine doting on a child of mine. It still amazes me every time I think of it. I'm writing this in part to tell you that if you ever wonder what you've done in your life, and everyone does wonder sooner or later, you have been God's grace to me, a miracle, something more than a miracle. You may not remember me very well at all, and it may seem to you no great thing to have been the good child of an old man in a shabby little town you will no doubt leave behind. If only I had the words to tell you. This is a beautiful portrayal of, of what, it, what it's like to receive a gift of grace. Now, what, what makes it a, a, a grace is... is uh, is that it was not expected. You know, like we kind of expect a gift on our birthday. It wasn't deserved. You know, like an honorarium 
is deserved uh, for a speaking, speaking engagement. You know, there's always some ambiguity about that. It's, it's a gift, <laughs> but we, we know it's coming. <laughs> this gift of grace is not given in exchange for anything else. Uh, in the story, the gift of this child born to an old man is all grace. And in response, Ames could only express his amazement and awe. It brings this man of words uh, to the limit of what he can say. If only I had the words to tell you. I think it's, it's this kind of image that we need to keep in mind when we try and wrap our minds around what Paul means when he says, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. At the heart of Christian experience is always this sense of astonishment and awe that we have received such a gift. And so many of our problems in the church and in the Christian life come from forgetting that truth. If you believe that the Son of God loves you and gave himself for you, this changes your view of yourself and, and of other people. You can no longer look at yourself and your life in isolation from what you have been given. You're no longer your own. Uh, in this book that I've been promoting recently for our, our theology book club uh, called You Are Not Your Own, uh, the author, Alan Noble, argues that this way of thinking, as people who've received uh, a great gift in Christ, uh, this way of thinking about our lives is really a whole new anthropology, a new way of thinking about what it means to be human. And he writes this, to belong to Christ is to find our existence in his grace, to live transparently before God. And this belonging to Christ necessarily entails belonging to his body, the church, and to our families and neighbors. An anthropology defined by our belonging to God is diametrically opposed to the contemporary belief uh, that we are autonomous, free, atomistic individuals who find our greatest fulfillment in breaking free from all external norms. Ourselves belong to God, and we are joyfully limited and restrained by the obligations, virtues, and love that naturally come from this belonging. This living before God is not easy, it requires sacrifice and humility, perpetual repentance and dependence upon Christ. In a secular age such as our own, it requires an intentional effort to remember that we belong to Christ and that belonging is not merely a doctrine, but a reality that touches every aspect of our lives. It's this reality that is the source of the Christian life, for which we need daily reminders. And this brings us to our, our second point today, the standard of the Christian life. It's when Christians forget that Jesus is the source of all life that they easily slip into a kind of religiosity and, and legalism. Faith becomes more about what we are doing rather than what God has done for us. Much of what Paul is saying in this letter to the Galatians is about taking seriously what it means to live in the light of the gospel as this incredible free gift of grace. In fact, in Greek, the word gift and the word grace are the same word. 
That's what God's grace is in Christ. It's the ultimate gift given to those who don't deserve it. So in verses 15 to 18, Paul contrasts these two ways of living, being justified by the works of the law or by being justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice the, the repetition between the works of the law and faith in Christ in, in verses 15 to 16. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So in, in other words, he's saying, we Jews, you know, speaking of himself and Peter, we, we Jews have always belonged to God and, and been in relationship with him, unlike the Gentile, you know, quote-unquote sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law because no one will be justified by the works of the law. So let's see if we can wrap our minds around this. For, for the circumcision faction whom Paul is combating, the, the works of the law meant adding to the gospel Jewish cultural and ethnic traditions. They wanted Gentiles to become more Jewish. If you're looking to the law, uh, to, to any command, to put you in right relationship with God, to, to be justified, to be declared in the right, like in a courtroom, it's dependent on you and your efforts, which will always fall short. But through faith in Jesus Christ, you can be declared righteous on the basis of what he has done rather than what you have done. If the standard of the Christian life is the works of the law, then no one will be justified because no one will measure up. But if the standard is Christ and his grace, what he has done to unite himself to us in his love, that changes everything. And it doesn't just change how you become a Christian by trusting in Christ. It also changes how you live as a Christian. And this is the core issue at stake in, in this letter. Paul's opponents were saying that you come into the church by grace, believing in Jesus, but in order to stay in, you needed to keep the law. You need to prove that you're, you're really committed in some way. And I, I think for us, even when we reject explicit forms of legalism, this attitude can so easily make its way into the church. But what Paul is emphasizing in this contrast between the works of the law on the one side and, and faith in Christ on the other is, is that the only standard for identity and status is now Christ himself and his love. Jesus doesn't invite us to believe in him and then leave us on our own to find our own way. He's the source of the Christian life at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. He's the standard for your identity and value all the way through. Let me try and make this more concrete for us. Or one of my uh, favorite books in recent years uh, is by an author named David Zoll, and he wrote a book that I've, I've recommended in the past called Seculosity, uh, with a great subtitle, uh, which is 
how career, parenting, technology, food, politics, and romance became our new religion and what to do about it. And in this book, rather than use the word righteousness to describe our source of justification, he uses the word enoughness. Now, the struggle for righteousness to be justified is the struggle to show the world that we are enough, that we have enough or that we do enough. And, and Zoll writes this, uh, listen carefully and you'll hear that word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. And the point is, everyone is looking for this condition of enoughness. And that applies to Christians as much as to anyone else. When we set up a benchmark or, or a standard besides Christ by which we judge ourselves or other people. And the message of the gospel is for you to believe at every moment that you are enough because you are not your own, you belong to Christ. He is your source in your life and your standard. This doesn't mean that you won't live differently as a result, but your motivation will be different. When you know that the love of Christ is your source and your standard for life, then you can live a different kind of story. This brings us back to the top, to verses 11 to 14, and in the conflict between Peter and Paul. What is really going on here? Paul is critiquing Peter, Cephas, for not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel by separating himself from the Gentiles. Essentially what Paul is saying is that Peter has set up a different standard than Christ by which he can judge people. And when he does this, he is no longer living out of his identity as one who believes that he has died and been raised with Christ, that he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Peter was not allowing this amazing gift to inform all his relationships and, and interactions. But when we do put Christ in the center of our lives and trust in him alone for our salvation, we look at things differently. Instead of judging people for whether they measure up to some false standard, you begin to approach all people as fellow sinners in need of grace. If you're living according to the law, you will always end up separating yourself from others in order to feed your pride or to prove that you really are enough. But if you're living according to grace, you don't have to prove yourself anymore. You're free to be truly humble and, and to serve others. The, the story of the Christian life is not that the righteous are in and the sinners are out, but that the humble are in and the proud are out. 
If the gospel is true, it means that you are enough, not because of anything you have done, but only because of what Jesus has done for you. You are accepted because God in Christ reveals that he is always moving towards you in self-sacrificial love. Not just when you first came to Christ, but even now, today. When we see this alternative between law and gospel, and not just at the beginning of our lives in Christ, but all the way through, it, it reveals our deepest problem. Something in us wants to prove ourselves. We don't want to be in a position of receiving grace. We don't like to be humbled. Flannery O'Connor shows what this looks like in her novel, Wise Blood, through a character named Hazel Motes. Hazel Motes is a man who has rejected Christianity uh, to preach a religion of his own making uh, that he calls the Holy Church of Christ without Christ. And at one point, uh, O'Connor says about him that he knew that the way, the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. In other words, if you don't have anything to confess, then you don't have to bother with Jesus. It's a strategy that many of us use to avoid him. Trying to be good people. But when you remember that the Son of God loves you and gave himself for you, then you can openly confess your faults and your weaknesses. You can run to him because you know that there is a well of grace for you that will never run dry. In verse 21 of, of our text today, at the end, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. In other words, if it were at all possible that people could be justified by keeping the law, then the Son of God didn't need to die a humiliating death on a cross. But when you see that he was willing to die for you in suffering love, then you know that you have a gift that you can never repay. So you can stop trying and instead simply praise and worship him for everything that he has given to you. This leads to a profound gratitude. Leslie Newbigin says, the Christian congregation meets as a community that acknowledges that it lives by the amazing grace of a boundless kindness. It is a body of people with gratitude to spare, a gratitude that can spill over into care for the neighbor. I, I love that, that image, gratitude to spare, a body of people with gratitude to spare, a gratitude that can spill over into care of the neighbor. Friends, may we have that kind of gratitude. Gratitude to spare, 
that can spill over into care for each other and for our neighbors. How do you get so much gratitude? So much gratitude that it's spilling over. If you want gratitude like that, don't focus on yourself and whether you're doing enough or whether you're better than someone else. If you want more gratitude, focus on the gift and the gift giver. It's as you meditate on Christ and his love that your heart is softened and you actually begin to care for those around you in new ways. Not when this is true, you'll be able to say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we pray that you would remind us today and always of all that you've done for us in the person and work of Jesus. Surprise us with your grace so that we might praise you as we ought. Give us eyes to see the glories of the suffering, self-sacrificial love of Jesus and keep us from all pride uh, so that we might love as you love, give as you give, and serve as you serve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.